Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com castle for your free audiobook download. Warning. Today's story contains sexually explicit themes. Podcastle. Episode number 50, for April 28th, 2009. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. So lately, my daughter has been intrigued by the idea of making sushi. So I hit the net and then went and bought some sushi rice and vinegar and some nori and let her go to it. That led to rice balls, which led to ordering rice ball molds, which are totally amazing and cool. And then we realized we just had to go to Global Foods. Global Foods is partly a regular grocery store. You can get nearly anything that any other local grocery has, but it's also got aisles devoted to various other parts of the world. There's an aisle for England with Germany and some of its neighbors right across from it. China, India, Greece, just all other sorts of places. We stopped at a cooler and got a can of grass jelly drink. We surveyed the various aisles just for fun, and I grabbed a jar of Marmite and a container of halva. We admired a bag of dried sardines. What do you do with dried sardines? I better find out because I suspect we'll be bringing some home next time. We put some Pocky in the basket and we contemplated Pokari sweat. And then we saw the tapioca crackers. They're big and round and sort of curly, almost like a funnel cake, only not quite as big and very white, stacked up in big plastic bags. My daughter was amazed and she said, Mom, what are those? And I had no idea. The bag said tapioca crackers. And I look up and the sign says Indonesia. I know next to nothing about Indonesia, but the internets tell me that it's made up of a cartload of islands, literally thousands of them. Java is the largest. Indonesia has hundreds of ethnic groups who between them speak more than 700 different languages. I can only imagine that that Indonesian stretch of the aisle in global foods is a very inadequate sample of what must be an incredible range of regional foods and cooking styles. Obviously, more research is called for. If nothing else, we need some recipes. Today's story is Komodo by Tim Pratt. It first appeared in his collection Heart and Boot and Other Stories. Tim Pratt's work has appeared in Asimov's, Realms of Fantasy, The Best American Short Stories, and other nice places, including right here on Podcastle, and he won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story last year. He's also a novelist with an urban fantasy series published under the oh-so-subtle pen name T.A. Pratt. The latest, Poison Sleep, came out in April, and the next, Dead Rain, will be out in November. You can find excerpts and free related stories at marlamason.net. He lives in Oakland with wife Heather Shaw and their son River. You can find out more at his website, timpratt.org. Komodo is read by Kat Rambo. She's a graduate of Clarion West, and her stories have appeared in Asimov's, Strange Horizons, and Subterranean Magazine. Her collection, The Surgeon's Tale and Other Stories, a collaboration with Jeff Vandermeer, is available on Amazon.com. Komodo by Tim Pratt The trouble began when I met my new lover for the month. I bumped into him at the little Chinese grocery around the corner from my building. He was an attractive young man, with some watered-down Asian ancestry in his features, buying ox blood and chicken feet. 
I was buying low mane and pork buns, but I have a high tolerance for people with stranger tastes than mine. We got to the register at the same time, and he gestured that I should go first, the sort of casual chivalry that I appreciate, as long as there is no hint of condescension. Then he offered to walk me to my car, this being a dangerous neighborhood for a woman out walking by herself. It's my neighborhood, I said, and I don't own a car, but you can walk me a couple of blocks if you want. We chatted as we went. His name was Kassan, and he was a personal trainer and lifeguard at a local gym. He wasn't a big guy, but he was wiry, and I could believe he was a swimmer. He seemed a bit awkward in conversation, as if he didn't speak to people much, and I wondered if he'd been scrawny and unpopular earlier in life, and gotten into physical stuff to help his self-esteem. I told him one of my standard half-truths, that I'd made a lot of money day-trading a few years ago, and that I was spending most of my time now reading and making art for my own amusement. My true ambitions are rather different, but I could hardly tell a stranger that my goal in life is to rack up a mostly positive karmic balance and eventually make a bid for immortality. We stopped at the front steps of my building, a weathered old townhouse that had been divided into flats. I glanced skyward, though I knew full well what the moon had to say. It was dark of the moon tonight, a good time for new beginnings, as any enterprise undertaken tonight would only grow in the following weeks as the moon waxed. I hadn't cultivated a new lover in many months. The last one had fulfilled all my wishes, and as he'd requested, was now living happily at the bottom of a local river, slowly decaying into the bottom mud and learning the languages of fish and pollution. In another hundred years or so, if the river didn't dry up entirely, he might become a minor river god. Kassan had appeared just in time, I had certain things to accomplish over the course of the next month, and the energy that came with a new lover could serve well to fuel those endeavors. Want to come upstairs for a while, Kassan? I asked. I'm beautiful. I'm desirable. I know how to sense when a potential partner is interested. I can say these things with no particular pride, because such powers require relatively small magics to achieve. People seldom say no to me. I never compel anyone to make love to me. Such mental domination is possible, but it's also essentially rape and cannot be condoned. I entice my lovers with beauty and bring them back again and again by giving them the best sex they've ever had. There's no magic to that, just years of experience and sensitivity to the needs of my lovers. I am good at what I do. Sex is my vocation and my devotion. Kassan wanted me and agreed to come in. I led him upstairs to the apartment on the top floor where I've made my lair for these past half-dozen years. It's a nice apartment, he said, and it is. Wine-red couch, tapestries in muted blues, and lots of bookshelves crammed with everything from a complete run of Burton's translation of the Arabian Nights to paperbacks with their covers ripped off that I'd bought from street vendors. It is nice, I said. You should see the bedroom. It's even nicer. But there's a dress code in there. You're not allowed to be dressed. Kassan stripped so fast his clothes might have been on fire, and his body was lean, young, and excited. I took his hand, feeling excited myself. Sex is my life and livelihood, but I haven't grown tired of it yet, and a new partner always thrilled me. I took him into my bedroom. Some time into the second round of lovemaking, he stopped moving long enough to touch my shoulder and get me to turn my head and look back at him. I'm embarrassed, he said. I never asked your name. Delany, I said. That's what it had been for the past few decades, anyway. Rhymes with felony, he said, grinning. He had a toothy, bright smile, but I didn't think anything of it at the time. 
We're not committing any of those, unless you're under 18 and didn't tell me. Nope, I'm legal. Just turned 20 last week. That explains the twice-in-an-hour thing we're doing here. So, birthday boy, ever had anal sex? He seemed surprised, but he agreed readily enough. Most men do. For my part, I like anal well enough if I'm in the right mood, but the main reason I wanted to do it was magical. There's a different flavor of power to sex when it's explicitly, incontrovertibly, non-procreational, and all that potential power of creation can be turned to other uses. Oral sex works just as well, but I have to take the seed into my body for maximum effect, and I've never liked the taste. Plus, in this culture at least, there's a whiff of the transgressive about the act which further fuels its potency. We'd have a lot of anal sex in the next month if things went my way. I needed the power. I had to renew my life force soon and restore the wards on my building, and there were certain other rituals to be performed, steps on the long road to true immortality and the bottom rung of godhood. You can lose the condom, I said, handing him a bottle of lube. I've got a recent clean AIDS test if you want to see it. Aren't you worried about catching something from me, he said. Should I be? Well, no. Then I'm not worried, I said. He could have every disease known to humankind, and it wouldn't hurt me. That's one of the benefits of magical life extension. I don't have to worry much about purely physical threats. I lay face down, and with only a little awkward fumbling and guidance from me, he slid in. When he orgasmed not long after, he bit down on my shoulder, his teeth breaking the skin. He apologized for the bite afterward, embarrassed, looking away. I've never done that before. I just lost control. I've had worse, I said, dabbing at my shoulder with a damp cloth. It wasn't a very deep bite. I'm flattered I had such an effect on you. Give me your number, and in a couple of days we'll see if I can make you lose control again. He scribbled down his home phone number, cell number, pager, fax, and email address. He was so eager I wanted him all over again. In four weeks or so, I'd reveal my powers to him and offer to invoke a vision to find his path to greatest happiness and help him toward it, as I did for all my lovers. It was a small reward in exchange for how much I drew from them during our month-long liaisons, and it kept me in favor with certain forces that were far above personal mortal concerns, but nevertheless retained an interest in human affairs. I, uh... Have to get up early tomorrow, he said, gathering his clothes, not looking at me. No worries, I said. I wouldn't have let him stay the night anyway. I had work to do. Most of the men I picked up wanted to sleep over, though. His desire to leave was probably just due to the shyness I'd sensed earlier. I doubted he was very experienced with women. We kissed goodbye at the door, though it was a bit hurried and awkward, and I wondered if I was his first one-night stand. I found his nervousness rather endearing. After his footsteps receded down the stairs... I went to my bedroom and opened the walk-in closet to my shrine, the stone altar, the crystals and figurines, the beads and candles, all the physical bric-a-brac that helps me focus and externalize the power that grows inside me each time I make love. I renewed the daily protections on my building. I had many old and formidable enemies. Then went into the kitchen and poured myself a glass of Shiraz. I stayed up for a while, reading a bit, and went to bed when the moon set at 3.30 a.m., still warmly pulsing from the power of the night sex. I spent the following morning rearranging all the fictives in the building, because it's dangerous to leave them in one position for too long. I owned the whole building, and every apartment but mine was filled with cheap furniture and those incredibly expensive, creepily realistic, life-size sex toys known as real dolls. The dolls are made down in San Marcos for about $6,000 each, and they appear convincingly human at first glance. I didn't have any interest in the dolls as masturbation aids, but since they have articulated skeletons and realistic, if silicon, flesh, they're human enough to fool all sorts of nasty spirits who have a tendency to think all people look alike anyway. 
In the old days, I may do with scarecrows and later mannequins to create my fictives, but their effectiveness was questionable at best. The dolls were the next best thing to hiring real people living in the other apartments, which was a bad idea for many reasons. Every day or two, I moved the dolls around, posing them at various stations of life, at the sink, in the shower, sitting around in the living room. They all carry little tokens of my body, bits of my hair woven in with their own, mostly, or fingernail clippings tucked in their mouths under their soft, rubbered tongues. There are creatures looking for me, tracking by half-remembered scents, and having bits of myself secreted away in so many lifelike figures scrambles their ability to detect me. And where they should see me, they see a blur of too many bodies and move on in confusion. The fictives have other uses, too. Anyone attempting to harm me magically is likely to affect one of the dolls instead. In apartment 2B, I found one of the dolls melted into a lumpy puddle of rubber, stuck to the carpet. The dolls are rated to survive temperatures in excess of 400 degrees Fahrenheit, so this wasn't a simple case of my leaving her by the sunny window for too long. Bits of her steel joints poked up gruesomely through the skin-toned silicon, and her eyes stared up from widely separated points in the mess. I shivered. Someone had aimed a devastating attack at me sometime in the past couple of days, and I hadn't gotten any warning of it at all. The protective spells that surround the building are supposed to erupt in diverse alarms if anyone attacks me magically. But in this case, nothing had happened, except the melting of my silicon proxy. I needed to clean up the doll, but I wasn't sure where to begin. She'd fused solid to the carpet. I'd have to buy some industrial solvents or something. In the meantime, I needed to investigate and find out who'd attacked me and why. Before I could start a ritual meant to uncover the psychic spore of whatever malevolent entity had targeted me, someone buzzed at my front door. I wrapped myself in a bathrobe and went down the creaky stairs to the foyer, where I opened the pebbled glass door. A man in a short-sleeved white shirt and a tie stood on my steps, holding a clipboard bulging with papers. You own this building? he said, looking down at his clipboard. I do. I'm the building inspector. I just checked out the exterior, and just to let you know, there are going to be a lot of fines. You've got structural problems. The fire escapes are death traps. I can tell right off that the windows in the back are too small for emergency fire exits. Well... It goes on. You'll get a copy of my report. I'll need to come into the building and inspect a couple of the apartments, too. Why, exactly, are you doing an inspection, I asked. He still wasn't looking at me. This would be much easier if he'd just look at me. Routine, he said, which was no answer at all. Though it wasn't the first time a building inspector had come by. I'd used magical persuasion to sidestep such an inspection when I took over the building, and there was apparently an unresolved file about this property at City Hall. I'd have to deal with it eventually, but I had too many other things to worry about now. At least this problem was easily remedied. I was still filled with power from my time with Kassan the night before, and I could twist this man's will in a moment. I touched the inspector's chin with the tip of my finger, and he looked up at me surprised. Once he looked into my eyes, I said, I'm sure you'll find everything in order. It wasn't a question or a request. It was a command, and I put the force of my powers of compulsion behind it. Something twinged inside my head, a sudden flash of migraine-intense pain, there and gone in an instant. I kept myself from wincing, though the pain worried me. I'm sure those other things you noticed are fine, too. You should probably check again and reconsider your report. He frowned and looked back down. No, ma'am, I don't think so. I'm fairly thorough. I'll come back to do the interior inspection later this week. My office will call you to set up a time. He walked away. I stood in the open doorway for a moment then shut the door and leaned my forehead against the glass. My powers had failed me. 
That building inspector was no adept in disguise, I could tell, and I hadn't felt any sort of protective spell wreathing him. My power simply hadn't worked. And that hadn't happened to me in more decades than I could count. I'd long since moved past the awkward early years of hit-or-miss magic into a realm of greater mastery. I might fail at more ambitious magic if I'd tried to expand my skills or did my work sloppily, but a simple compulsion laid on an unsuspecting human? It should have worked. It should have been as easy as breathing. I went upstairs again. Whoever had attacked me had done more than just melt one of my fictives. They'd somehow interfered with the flow of my power, and I could not allow that. I'd do my ritual, which would at least point me in the right direction, and I'd find out which old or new enemy had decided to come for me. The ritual didn't work. The candles burned, the crystals sparkled, the words filled my mind, but it didn't work. I was like a boat on becalmed seas. My sails were useless, without the wind of magic to fill them, and my magic was gone, as if I'd used it all up trying to compel that little building inspector. This was bad on more than one level. Without magic, I couldn't renew my life force, and in another week or so, I would begin to age and die, the years catching up with me exponentially. On the first day after I failed to renew the spell, I would age one year. On the second day, two years. On the third day, four years, and so on, the amount doubling each day. A week later, my body would be over 150 years old, and I'd be dead. That was assuming I survived it this week, without my magic to maintain the protective spells on my building and keep the fictives activated. Various old enemies would probably take the opportunity to strike. I had a day, perhaps, before those protective spells weakened. The whole reason I'd slept with Kassan the night before was to gain more power to work these magics, and now some assault had drained me. Which meant it was time to call Kassan and get him to come over again. A marathon session of fucking would fuel me enough to strengthen the protections on my building, at least, even if I had to cast the spell during the act itself, letting the power pass through me and directly into the workings of magic. I called Kassan's home number, and a pizzeria answered. Annoyed, I called his cell phone. The number was not in service. His pager number went to a nursing home. I tried his email address, and it bounced. His fax number didn't go to a fax at all, but to a local used car lot. I pressed stop on the fax machine to cut off the querulous voice of the car salesman coming over the speaker. Kassan had given me fake contact information. I was surprised, and a little hurt, and a lot suspicious. I had apparently misjudged him. It now seemed likely I wasn't his first one-night stand and that he'd had the fucking slip-away technique down to a science. He'd certainly fooled me with his shy and awkward approach, and I was normally a good judge of such things. Unless. Was Kassan something more sinister than an opportunistic lover? Was he an enemy sorcerer in disguise? Had he fucked some kind of poison into me, something to steal my abilities? How could I possibly find him? And find out. I wondered if I was being paranoid, grasping at remote possibilities because I couldn't figure out how to investigate more likely ones. I sank down to the floor, wanting to curl up and whimper. I'd begun studying magic in order to protect myself, to control my destiny, to author my own fate, so that I would never be helpless or dependent on anyone else. And now that power had been taken away from me. I didn't know how to cope. I forced myself back on my feet. Curling up in a ball did not qualify as coping. And if I didn't know what to do next, I'd just have to think about things until I did. I walked along the asphalt, multi-use path until I reached the wooded side of the lake, a little natural realm in the midst of downtown, the tops of buildings visible over the trees. The day was springtime cool, blue and clear, and the lake reflected the sky like a mirror. It was too pretty a day to be thinking of last resorts, but here I was. 
I went into the trees until the path was invisible behind me, and only the occasional flash of light reflecting on water showed in front of me. I knelt on the leaves beneath the oaks, before a large stone, rounded as if it were the top half of an egg buried in the soil. Bury, I said. I need it now. I waited. After a moment the leaves rustled, and the earth opened up before me, the rock rolling aside as if pushed by invisible hands. Dirt began to slide apart, neatly piling up in heaps on either side of the growing hole. Down at the bottom, a lump of dull round stone the size of a coconut rested. It rolled up out of the hole, coming to rest between my knees. The dirt poured back into the hole. The wind rose, blowing my long hair, lifting it off my shoulders. Barry had always liked it when I wore my hair up, to show off my neck. He'd been a good lover and a good friend. Ever since he'd been a little boy, he'd had dreams in which he was bodiless and all-seeing, a spirit of the wind. After our month was over, many years ago, I helped him attain that wish, sacrificing his body and his mortality to become a local spirit of the lake and the oaks. His desire was not so different from mine, though the path I followed took far longer and had far greater potential rewards. Barry would only exist for so long as his grove of trees did, while I sought true immortality. Still, he would live long past his normal human span, in happiness and contentment, and I'd helped him reach that point. As thanks, he'd been watching something for me. I picked up the lump of cold stone and brushed clinging bits of soil away, slipped it into a canvas grocery bag over my shoulder, and stood up. Thanks, Barry, I said, and headed back home. I set the stone orb on my altar, then picked up a perfectly mundane claw hammer. I cracked the orb with a hammer, and it split neatly in two, halves falling to reveal the sparkling crystals inside. It was a geode, beauty hidden in a drab exterior, but it was more than that, too. It was my life savings. I'd made this object many years before at great cost, draining myself of power over several successive months, pouring it off into this orb. I'd done no other magic for the half-year it took to make this orb, and using it now was almost painful like being forced to spend your life savings on emergency medical expenses. This was magic, my magic, but not contained within my body, and so safe from whatever corruptive influence had tainted my powers. The orb was a one-use device, unfortunately, and its power would be expended on whatever spell I cast now. I set up the investigative ritual again, this time putting the geode at the focal point of the objects I ranged around me. When I lit the last candle and said the last word, the room thrummed with energy, and the crystals in the geode began to turn black, one by one, as the power stored within them dissipated. I closed my eyes. The ritual worked. Knowledge fell upon me. The vision is difficult to describe. There were voices, images, and implicit knowledge seemingly dropped into my mind, all in the service of answering my questions. Who had attacked me? How had they wrought this harm? The main thing I saw in the vision was Komodo dragons. You've seen them on television, probably, if not at the zoo. Native to Indonesia, they're the largest lizards on the planet these days, weighing in at up to 300 pounds, 12 feet long, carnivorous, carrion-eaters, relentlessly predatory, snouts full of teeth so sharp and protruding that they actually slice open the flesh of their mouths every time they bite down. Most importantly, the mouths of Komodo dragons are a crawl with some of the world's nastiest bacteria, 50 different kinds, at least a half dozen of them septic. Any animal a Komodo dragon bites dies even if it escapes immediate evisceration, because the resulting infection from the bite is so virulent. It's not venom, not like snake poison. It's just germs. Komodo dragons are the perfected form of natural biological warfare. The bacteria are nasty, but the Komodo dragon's own immune system has no difficulty keeping the germs under control. Otherwise, the dragons would die the first time their teeth broke the skin in their own mouths. 
A lot of doctors are interested in Komodo dragons for that very reason, hopeful of finding a human application for the dragon's supercharged immune systems. Komodos eat people sometimes, but then they eat anything they can rip apart and swallow. And they aren't picky about avoiding hooves, skins, or entrails. They can swim, too, which a lot of people don't know, especially people who jump into water to try to escape a hungry one. They're vicious, wicked, relentless, single-minded, perfect predators for their environment. And according to my vision, I'd recently had sex with one in human form. It was possible that Kassan was some sort of Komodo dragon spirit, or a sorcerer who'd fully taken on the totemic powers of a Komodo dragon, or something even stranger. Ultimately, it didn't matter. The effect on me was the same. After the ritual, I went to the bathroom and looked at my shoulder in the mirror. The place where Kassan had bitten me was still red, but didn't look obviously infected. It probably wasn't infected, not physically, but Kassan's bite was the magical equivalent of a Komodo dragon's bite, and it had corrupted me psychically. No wonder my magics had failed. My body would likely have died, too, if not for the protective power of the fictive, which had melted in my place. I was lucky to be alive, but my spirit body was still swarming with magical infection. I went back to the living room, looked at the geode, all its crystals turned black, all that carefully hoarded power spent on the ritual. I was powerless again. No, that was the wrong kind of thinking. I was magically powerless, but there were other forms of power. I went to a cabinet and opened the bottom drawer. Inside, nestled in velvet, were my ritual knives. They were meant for the occasional personal bloodletting, for cutting up sacred ingredients, and for other magical purposes. But they were also sharp, curved, and perfectly adequate for other uses. Using them on a person would taint the blades, make them profane and unfit for magic. But with luck, I wouldn't have to use them, just make the threat. Still, the knives felt good and familiar in my hands. I slid two into sheaths on my ankles, beneath my long black skirt and tucked others into my waist. If they became tainted with the blood of Kassan the Komodo man, I'd have to consecrate new ones. With luck, I could convince him to fix what he'd done to me, and I wouldn't need to resort to violence. The visions had given me knowledge of Kassan's whereabouts, an image of him in his home, a run-down, little one-story house, and I could recite his street number as if I'd known it for years. I went out, afraid but determined, and wondered if that was the way all dragon slayers felt as they set out on the hunt. I knocked on Kassan's door, and when he opened it, he was clearly surprised to see me. Even knowing what he was, I still thought he was cute. Oh, he said, I didn't expect to... Shit, Melanie, right? I seized. Delany, I corrected. What did you do to me, Kassan? He leaned against the door jamb, as if we were having a casual conversation. Bit you, he said. Didn't mean to, didn't plan to. But it happens pretty much whenever my self-control slips. He frowned. I don't usually hear from the people I bite again, though. That's because I usually die, Kassan. Yeah, well, he scratched his head. It's not like I go back to check or anything. I don't quite have the hang of being human yet, but I'm working on it, you know? I'll get over the biting thing eventually. I've only been doing this for a few months. I didn't mean for anybody to die. Why did you give me fake phone numbers? Like I said, I'm learning to be human. That's what men do when they have a one-night stand, right? Give the girl a fake phone number. The expression on his face was almost painfully earnest, as if he were worried about being reproached. I'd give him more than reproach if he didn't start saying something useful. Sure, asshole, lesson well learned. But I'm not a typical girl, and here I am, seeing you again. I need you to fix me. Give me the antidote, or suck the poison out, or do whatever's necessary to make me normal again. I paused, or else. I would if I could, really, but I've got no idea how to undo the effects of the bite. You should be impressed that I managed to pass for human. Don't expect me to be some kind of doctor, too. 
I bit you. You're infected. Most people just die, I guess, like you said. I don't know what'll happen to you if you stay alive. Maybe you should get a blood transfusion or something. Or maybe it'll pass. And this is a psychic infection. It's magical, so I don't think a blood transfusion will help. I'll probably get the supernatural equivalent of gangrene and all my magic will rot off. At least that might happen if I was going to live longer than two weeks, which seemed unlikely. You're some kind of witch, right? So can't you do something witchy? Sure, I said. Human sacrifice is starting to sound appealing. You're not strictly human, but you'll do. Kassan was useless, whether he was a lizard god or something stranger. He didn't know how to fix me. Killing him wouldn't change that, but it wouldn't hurt anything either. And if I was going to age to death, I didn't want to be the only one who died. I slipped my hand into my waistband to pull out one of my knives. Look, I'm sorry about the bite, but I can't help you. Sex with strangers is risky. You know that. I don't think Kassan even noticed I was going for the knife. He just shut the door in my face, apparently tired of talking to me. I stood there for a moment, holding my knife. Then I rattled the knob, but it was locked. The windows were barred. This wasn't a great part of town, so breaking one of those wasn't an option. I pounded on the door with my free hand and shouted. If I'd had my powers, that door would have been splinters, and Kassan wouldn't have fared much better. I'm calling the police, he shouted, and appeared briefly at his barred window, showing me the phone. Then he closed the curtains. I kicked his door, then turned and stalked off. I couldn't decide if Kassan was malicious or genuinely clueless, if he was really trying to be human and just following the wrong role models. Certainly there were plenty of men out there who treated women the way Kassan had treated me. I wondered if he could be shown the error of his ways. I can't help it. Even at my most furious, I'm a romantic at heart. When I make love to someone, I want very much to like them afterward. Even, apparently, when they bite me and poison me and take all my powers away. I walked the block from the bus stop to my apartment building but stopped on the far side of the street from my front door. There was something wrong. I may have lost my power, but my senses were as good as ever, and my well-developed awareness noticed certain things out of place. Curtains had moved in some of the fictive's apartments. The doormat on the steps was askew, and there was a faint suggestion of a shape on the far side of the pebbled glass in the front door. Something was inside my building. Up on the third floor, in the apartment where I lived, a curtain twitched, and I caught a glimpse of something red and slick touching the cloth, leaving a blood-colored splotch on the fabric. I faded back fast, half hiding behind a line of newspaper boxes. My apartment building had been breached. The protective spells had faded, and now my enemies, the long-lived non-human ones, creatures I'd bested or cheated or outwitted in battles long ago, had come looking for me, creeping through my rooms, profaning everything they touched. The red thing in my apartment was not the smartest or the most aggressive of my enemies. Thus, he'd been stupid enough to show himself. But if he was inside, then there were certainly others, more dangerous ones. I couldn't go home. It was getting dark, and I was tired and dispirited, and I couldn't even go home. I walked another few blocks and caught another bus, paying with the last of my change. I rode to the lake and made my way to Barry's glade. I collapsed among the trees, curling up on a bed of leaves. Barry fussed around me, making the branches sway, trying in his wordless way to comfort me and offer whatever solace he could. I thought about dying there just laying in among the trees until my age caught up with me. I'd used up my only reserve of power, and now I had nothing left, nothing to fall back on, nowhere to turn. I dozed in the dirt, my body exhausted, my mind overwhelmed, and Barry gently swept a covering of leaves over me, the best blanket he could muster. His efforts made me smile wanly, and I said, Thank you, lover. And suddenly I was wide awake. I sat up, scattering leaves all around me. I put my hand on the egg-shaped stone that had once marked the resting place of my reserved power. 
I'd always thought that was the only thing I'd managed to save up over the years, my only rainy day protection. But that wasn't true. I'd saved up something else, too. Barry, I said, I need you to deliver a message for me. Several messages, actually. The next morning I rode in a limousine to Kassan's house. I'd slept in a bed that night and had a fine meal earlier in the morning. I was still poisoned, still dying, but I was no longer as bereft as I'd been. When we arrived, the chauffeur opened the door for me. His face was a tenuous blur, his body almost transparent in places. Both the chauffeur and the car were mere ghosts, but they were solid enough to take me and the others to Kassan's house in style. I walked to Kassan's door alone, but with a legion prepared to come forth if needed. I knocked. No one answered. I had the idea that Kassan slept in, so I knocked again, and this time the sound reverberated deep into the house, rattling the windows. I heard swearing inside the house, and a moment later the door opened, revealing Kassan sleepy-eyed and still damnably cute. Delany, he said, you couldn't wait until afternoon to come and try to kill me again? I've been thinking about Komodo dragons, Kassan, I said. They have tremendous natural immune systems, as I'm sure you know. Doctors have been studying them for a while, trying to find out how those hyperactive immunities work, hoping to develop a way to use them to help humans. Great, Kassan said. That explains why I never get colds. He started to shut the door. I stopped it with my hand. Kassan pushed harder. Kassan pushed harder. And though he should have been able to force me back with his superior physical strength, the door didn't move. It explains more than that, I said. Since your bite has magical consequences, I think your immune system does too, and that you're immune to magic. To your own, at least, the same way Komodo dragons are immune to their own bacteria. That's a pretty useful ability. It's so useful, I want it for myself. What are you talking about? Sympathetic magic. I want to borrow some of your power. Not steal it, just borrow it. To save my life, among other things. Uh-huh, Kassan said. And does this involve chopping me up wearing my guts as a belt? No. Just a ritual, some magic, some words, some concentration, some sex. We fuck, you bite me again, I bite you, I take in your blood, you take in mine. If I'm immune to magic, how are you going to cast a spell on me? I can temporarily suppress your immunity, I said. I have a potion. I patted a pouch at my waist. Kassan frowned. So why should I do this? What's in it for me? This is your chance to be a good guy, Kassan. You've gotten the hang of being an asshole, but there are other options available to an astute student of human behavior. Hmm. If there's one thing I've learned, it's that people are liars. I think you're probably lying to me now. I bet you do want to wear my entrails for a belt. I saw those knives you brought last time, so you better take off before I call the cops again. Okay, I said. Plan B, I guess. I stepped off the porch. And two score of my old lovers stepped forward. Well, some of them stepped. Others floated or shifted into this visible plane or rose up from puddles of shadow or precipitated out of the air into a cloud of shimmering gray particulates or made their presence known with the jingle of little silver bells, the smell of cut lemons, a sensation of suddenly dry warmth. Kassan tried to slam his door again and still failed, though this time there was no one visibly holding it open. I thought you'd lost your power, Kassan said, backing away into his house. This isn't my power, I said. These are just my friends. Old lovers who remember me fondly. You might want to take notes, because this is something else humans do. We make friends, we inspire loyalty, and we do things for each other. I'd realized it the night before, lying in the dirt, that I'd saved up a lot of goodwill over the years, and I didn't necessarily have to deal with all my problems alone. I'd made love to these men and women, and helped them become their better selves. My old lovers weren't perfect people. Some of them were short-sighted, temperamental, self-centered, judgmental, and lazy 
just like any cross-section of the population. But they all had good qualities, things in them that I could love, and there were things in me they loved in return. And this particular two score of my old lovers were even more exceptional, because these were the ones who had longed to rise above their limitations and flaws, who'd wished in their deepest hearts to become something more than engines of appetite and guilt. These were the ones who didn't care about having the most money, or fucking the most people, or getting revenge. They had wished for transcendence, and I'd done what I could to help them toward that goal. They all still loved me a little, and like anyone who feels fond towards an old lover, they hated to see me hurt by a new lover. They swept into Kassan's house, and with their arms of light and shadow, their hands of wind and invisible weight, they held him down on the floor. I came into his dim, shabby house, and set up candles and claws, items my lovers had brought me the night before, and that I'd hurriedly consecrated. The ritual was prepared. Now all I had to do was pour the potion down Kassan's throat. My old lovers would make sure he swallowed it. Then I could tear open his clothes, climb on top of him, and... I slumped on the carpet, put my head in my hands, and said, Damn it. My old lovers stirred and fluttered, unsure what to do. They released Kassan, who sat up, wary, and looked at me. What's happening? I can't do it. I can't take you against your will. I won't rape you. That's what it would be, even if it is to save my life. It goes against everything I am. I could murder you more easily than I could fuck you against your wishes. I thought I could if I had to, if you wouldn't see reason, but I shook my head. I could have raped Kassan and gone on living, but I wouldn't have been able to live with myself afterward, and it would have tainted my powers forever. Maybe it would be better just to kill myself. That might be more pleasant than being killed by the monsters in my building, or hiding out, waiting to age and die. Kassan looked around the room. All these things? They're really your old lovers? I nodded, wiping my tears away. Old lovers, old friends. They wanted to help me. They used to be human, and you helped them become what they are now? I looked around, smiling despite myself, because it made me happy to see how well they were all doing. There was Michael, a little gin of air and dust in the corner, who'd left the broad deserts he loved exploring to come help me. There was Serafina, a swirling shadow creature, who in her bodiless dark form sprawled across the galaxies, tasting the space between stars. Carlo, who lived in the space between universes, endlessly conversing with the vast, strange intelligences who held conflicting realities at bay. Martindale, who'd been a brewmaster in his mundane life, and who'd learned how to make magical potions. He was the one who concocted the magical immunity suppressant I'd planned to force feed to Kassan. They were here, and so many others. And this didn't even count my lovers who weren't here, the ones who'd retained their human forms, who I'd helped pursue their dreams to create art, or to live in the deep woods off the produce of the land, or to grow grapes in the south of France. My lovers made it possible for me to live forever, and I helped them live their own dreams. Yeah, of course I helped them. We had fun, and we cared for each other. It was good. Kassan touched my leg. Could it go the other way? Could you help someone who's not human become human? I've watched people, men in bars, men in the gym, and I've tried to do what they do, but this, these people, I don't understand this, what you do together, what you had together. I want to understand. I used to be a spirit of the islands, a dragon made of smoke and sea mist. But since the first time I saw a human, I've wanted to understand. I stared at him. He was, fundamentally, a voracious, septic reptile. But something had made him try to be human, to make the leap from being an animal spirit or a totemic force or a demigod, a creature of appetite, living in the moment, to being a man. Some urge for betterment within him had enabled Kassan to attempt this only partial transformation. He might have been lying to me. He'd done so before. 
but I believed he was telling the truth about wanting to be a better man. In every relationship, there comes a moment where you can't go forward unless you're prepared to risk trusting the other person. Yes, I said, I can help you. Start by drinking this. I took the glass bottle containing the potion from my pouch. And we'll make love again? I liked that. He was shy again, looking away, and this time I thought it was genuine. Yes, I said, I liked it too. He drank the potion. My old lovers watched him, and once he'd swallowed it all, they slipped, melted, vanished, and flew away from the house. If anything happened to me at Kassan's hands, they would come for him. Kassan must have known that, but it didn't seem to worry him at all, which told me I'd been right to trust him this time. I really didn't mean to bite you the other night, Kassan said. I believe you. We made love, there on his living room floor, and as the power filled me, I let it pour back out again before it could become tainted. Let the magic surround us, until finally I bit his shoulder, and he bit mine, and his power flowed into me, and some of mine, I think, flowed into him. Afterward, we lay together, and I felt full of magic again, and knew that I could contend with the difficulties that lay ahead. Kassan was still just a bad mood away from being a man-eating reptile, but now I was immune to his bite, which meant I had nothing catastrophic to fear, and I could help him find out what kind of man he should be. There might be things for me to learn from him, too. I wondered if I'd been missing the point all these years, striving for immortality and godhood at the expense of being human. Kassan was trying to go in the other direction, which certainly made me question some of my assumptions. In all these long years of limiting myself to a month at a time with any given lover, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe there would be advantages to a longer relationship. Kassan, I said, running a fingernail down his chest. Hmm? he said sleepily. He might have been any of my lovers then, sated, happy, and warm. Would you take me to the islands where you're from sometime? Sure, he said. We'll go in a few months when it's summer there. It's beautiful then. I'd like that, I said. Whether you loved or hated today's story, we hope you'll keep checking out more audio fiction. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks that you can download to your personal computer or MP3 player. Listen any when, anywhere. Audible has over 40,000 titles representing every genre, including 1,000 science and technology books and 1,100 science fiction and fantasy titles. Audible has been kind enough to offer a free audiobook to Podcastle listeners who sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash castle today. If I were to grab something from Audible today, I'd pick up Kindred by Octavia Butler. In my opinion, Octavia Butler is one of the greatest writers of the last century. Her book Kindred is one of her most celebrated pieces of work. I've read it a couple times, and I bet I could listen to it more than once, too. Again, that website is audiblepodcast.com slash castle. Sign up and get your free audiobook today. Episode number 44 was Nina Kiriki Hoffman's Immersed in Matter, about a half-human, half-fay boy with a powerful desire for horses. Most commenters generally enjoyed the story, if with a couple of reservations. On the blog, Tomo said, Thanks for a good story. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I do wish there had been more follow-through on what the deal was with the horse and the father, but I still thought it was good. The wish for more follow-through was common. On the board, Digital VG said, it didn't end so much as just stop, in my opinion. 
There was some unreserved admiration. Biscuit said, what a beautiful voice Chris Renaga has. His reading was so soothing with just the right dollop of angst and empathy. Lovely story. And Koss said, now that's the stuff right there. More like that, please. Come join us at forum.escapeartist.info and let us know what you think. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. A.E. Houseman said, I tell the tale that I heard told, Mithridates, he died old. Mm-hmm.